Hi, this is JJ, host of The Great People Show. And this particular episode is going to be a special bonus for you, our podcast listeners. Last Thursday evening, I had the privilege and honor to speak to a group here in Richmond called Parliament, which is a meeting of young men between the ages of about 25 to 35. And for the first time in close to 20 years, I was asked to speak, and my topic had to be me. It's not usual for me to talk about myself, especially in front of a lot of people. And so what I did was I created a presentation that I tried to both talk about me and my story, but also create a tremendous amount of value for the audience. So that's why I decided to include it in this podcast, because if you're a regular listener of this podcast, I do believe that you will get a lot of good nuggets that will help you in your journey. So it's about 38 minutes, and I just want to thank you for taking the time to listen to it. Thanks for being a great listener. Well, good evening. He said a great speaker, but you've never heard me speak. So I can't wait to see how this turns out. Thanks for inviting me out, Michael. I told this was my contract with Michael. I said, if this goes exceptionally well, he's going to get all the credit. If this goes really bad, I'll take all the blame. Okay. So any complaints can come to me afterwards. And if they're all good, then they can go to him. A few questions, and this will help you know a little bit more about me and my background. Do we have anybody here from Roanoke? Couple, one, one, okay. By chance, do we have any Roanoke College grads? That's okay, we only need one of us. And has anyone before this introduction heard of Dale Carnegie before? I know Patrick has. Cool, by chance, anyone here ever been to a Dale Carnegie program? prevent a couple of you. So this is kind of neat because I have one of my favorite competitors in the group here. So the neat part is that's not going to change what I say. Um, one of these days I'm going to go to his event, and make him squirm a little bit. So we'll see how that, see how that goes. <clears throat> when Michael called me and asked me to, to come speak, it was after 18 years of speaking in front of groups. I've been doing this for a long time in front of a long, a lot of people for, a, for just about anything you could imagine. This is the first time in 18 years anyone's asked me to speak about me. I'm always in front of a group facilitating, coaching. I can't tell you how much I really want to give you all some index cards and get you all working on some things to learn to be better leaders and communicators and, and whatnot, but I'm not going to do that tonight. I'm going to try to talk as much as I can about me that's of value to you. So uh, we've got a hard stop just to make sure we got a hard stop at eight o'clock, right? 745? I'll go till midnight. So you tell me. What's, what's, okay, so a Q&A. But if, but if, I thrive more in a Q&A. I think we could probably have a little bit more fun with, with a Q&A. Um, I am 44 today and it didn't uh, occur to me till about four or five years ago why I, I was actually put on this earth. And I don't know if anybody ever has struggled with that question or is struggling with that now of what in the world am I supposed to be doing here? Or you may be asking yourself, there's got to be more to it than this. And at some point, we're going to lead up, up, up to that question. I alluded earlier, I'm, I'm from Roanoke, from the Star City. What high school? Okay, I'm Patrick Henry. So we had a... Okay. Good, bad, okay, good. Um, your wife, I mean, it's your wife, so there's only one correct answer to that, Gray. <laughs> okay, yeah, she, oh, it was perfect, good, good, that's even better answer. Um, anyone ever been to Roanoke, like, like traveled? Okay, so you're familiar, you know where it's at, you can find it on a map. 
Um, I would expect that from Richmond folks, maybe not so much from someone outside of Virginia. They're like, I thought they all died. No, no. I mean, it's, just, it's at that point, or when you're talking to them on the phone, they're like, oh, let's see, uh, Ro, Ro, yeah, it's Roanoke. Oh, okay, right. They're trying to pronounce it. It's, it's Indian. Um, so I was born there, uh, went to Patrick Henry High School, and stayed around to go to uh, Virginia Western Community College because I wanted to go to community college instead of going to somewhere for a year and flunking out because that was the path I was on. I mean, it was a rough ride in high school for me. I found way more adventure in drinking and women than I did anything that had to do with school. So I just decided, you know, maybe I need to look at, my best friend went to the Marines and I went to community college. And um, either, either one of those paths would have been great for either one of us. Ended up at Renner College and got my degree in accounting. Any, go accounting, yes. Do we have any, uh, here are the accountants in the room. Who are the CPAs in the room? All right, quick little piece of trivia. I thought I was gonna become a CPA. I went to school for it. I got a degree for it. I sat for the CPA exam, and then I sat again, and then I sat again. And I realized I was not gonna become a CPA in my entire life. So I decided to get into the payroll business because it was kind of like, it was like, it was like not making the police force, so I'm gonna go become a security guard type thing. <laughs> That's really what this thing turned out to be. Payroll is like the, the stepchild of accounting, sort of. It was the best decision I could ever make because it was while I was at that company that I was able to take the Dale Carnegie course. I was in my early 20s, and almost everybody learns to become a leader from a couple different sources. You learn to become a leader from your parents. You learn to become a leader from your teachers. You learn to become a leader from your friends. And unfortunately, most guys don't learn to become leaders by reading books. Because if you're not familiar with this, but the teenage reader, women outnumber, teenage, women outnumber men, teenage readers, 14 to 1. So there's a statistical chance most of the guys in here didn't actually physically read a whole book until they got into college, just statistically. But these are the major places that we end up getting our leadership skills from. So when you get into college, that continues on. When you get out of college or just get into the workforce, then you add another element to that. You learn to become a leader from the managers that you have. Leadership is typically a modeling exercise. You're being modeled right now by the people that you work for or have worked for. And just from the makeup of the group, we're talking 25 to early 40s, late 30s, mid 30s in here. Uh, who here has children? About half the group maybe. So now that modeling is starting to turn itself on the head, isn't it? Now all of a sudden it's like, oh crap, I gotta know what I'm doing because I got these eyeballs now watching me. How many of you are a leader of people in your profession? You have people that you influence and work for you, okay? Now another multiple sets of eyeballs. So you start to see this thing switching. And I got into my profession um, learning at this point, I, I hated school. I barely made it through. At Rona College, I got a 2.999. I will never forget that. It probably only took me turning in one extra thing in four years to get a 3.0. 
talk about coming up short. And the other thing that I had running against me is I grew up in an alcoholic home. I'm not going to ask hands on that one, but if you have, and and (laughs) the next question would be how many of you have an alcoholic home? That would even be worse. So if by chance we'll have counseling sessions afterwards, AA meeting, maybe we'll, we'll talk about that later, but that adds a whole other dynamic to who you've learned to become as a leader. And so you jump into the real world like, like I did. I thought I knew it all. Like I was one of the most arrogant, egotistical, self-righteous human beings that you could ever imagine. I didn't have a lot of friends and there was no wonder why because I really thought I had it all together. And then I hit the, the workforce and that just wasn't working out for me. Fortunately, the company that I was working for very quickly saw that when I became a leader there. Like, oh dear, JJ doesn't know how to be a leader. This is bad news for us. So they put me into the Dale Carnegie course. Now, I don't want to give the image that people come to Dale Carnegie because they're broken. In fact, in my clients today, we try to shield, we we call them our Ellis Island customers. Patrick, you may be familiar with this. It's people that want to do business with us because they want to send us their tired, weak, and poor, right? That's not why we're here. We're not here to fix people. We don't want your brokenness. So I came into Dale Carnegie and went through that whole program. A month later, I got fired. I got fired because my nature was still in there. Like who I was, was still a dominant force in my life. While I was able to shift some of the relationships that I had at work and start, I started to understand now who I needed to become, but it was too late for that company. I'll chalk that one up to another blessing. And by the way, at this point in my life, I didn't didn't even know what a blessing was. I had blessings in a bottle, really. I mean, I was, I was having way too much fun to care. And, um, about three months later, I was still unemployed and everyone kept saying, you ought to be in sales. You ought to be in sales. You ought to be, because I was, a, I was a manager. I was, I was getting payrolls. I was printing checks at 10 o'clock at night and then breaking every speed law to get to the Roanoke Regional Airport and throwing these boxes over the fence to the UPS guys so they could toss them into the airplane so people could have paychecks the next day. This was 22 years ago. That's just how we did it. It's like, I wasn't really getting, giving up much by getting fired from this company, I didn't think. I mean, it was kind of like, okay, I'm cool with this. Because when you're self-centered and egotistical and self-righteous, things are never happening for you, they're happening to you, right? Um, I was a victim. And I, have, have you ever heard of the Cartman drama triangle? Uh, look, look this thing up. If, if you ever get really confused on why people have extraordinarily poor behaviors. Google Cartman drama triangle and it'll just start to explain everything. I'm not going to get into that tonight. That's your homework. Google Cartman drama triangle. But I was the victim. I was the one that was just sucking everyone into my drama triangle. But the Dale Carnegie experience had done something to me that started to change who I was. And I kept applying for all these sales jobs and I wasn't getting any callbacks because I didn't have any sales experience. I remember one job specifically I wanted so bad and it was to sell Hershey's ice cream. I saw that ad and I was like, this is a dream job. Who would not want to sell Hershey's ice cream? Never got a call back from that. And then one day I saw an ad in the paper for a salesperson for Dale Carnegie. I was like, son of a gun, I can do this. I just took that course. 
Now, I never told David I was fired. I just kind of skated around that issue because the company I was working for was still a customer of Dale Carnegie. And he hired me on the spot, and I remember my very first day. Well, two things happened my first day that had an impact on me. First of which, he said, there's your phone, here's a phone book, call everyone you can. I was like, got it. What do I say? Just tell them about your Dale Carnegie experience and ask for an appointment. You got it. That was horrible. Like that was <laughs> horrible. Like it was the most scarring experience of my life. You know, we didn't have any computers. There was no, there was no email really. There, there was one email in the office and it went to the office manager and she printed off the email and then put it on David's desk. David did not have a computer. 20 years ago. The other thing that had a profound impact on me that first day, anyone here a NASCAR fan? You can admit it. It's, it's like smoking. It's like, yeah, I smoke. It's okay. NASCAR fan? Okay, here's your driver. <laughs> yeah, bandwagon. But, you know, that's all right. Now, was he your driver before last weekend? Oh, well, we'll give you some credit then. Yeah, he's a, he's a good guy. He's just ticked off a few people along the way, but that's kind of what, what re by the way, this is a pretty much a cross-section of NASCAR fans today, two out of 35, right? I think it's coming back. I had an interest in NASCAR at the time, but I really didn't have a, a love for it or a passion for it or even know much about it. So I come into the office that day and there's a guy in the conference room and David was giddy. Like I'd known David now probably for like six months because he was in the course that I, that I took. He said, you have to be on your best behavior. Eddie Wood is in the, the conference room. I was like, who's Eddie Wood? He's like, who's Eddie Wood? Who's Eddie Wood? He's the owner of the oldest race team in NASCAR. I was like, well, that sounds pretty cool. Well, Eddie, the next week, was giving a, a speech to 1,500 Ford executives because their sponsor is Ford. Motorcraft has always been forward, and he's here to get some coaching. So I sat in on this, and he gave us free tickets to the Martinsville race. So I became a NASCAR fan, and I've been ever since. Woods, well, it, it's, it's, Wood Brothers, the team that I follow. Of course, Menard is my driver this year, but I don't like to talk about that. I'm still a Ryan Blaney fan. He's Team Penske. Clearly, no one really has any interest in what we're talking about right now. But um, So... I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where someone has, has thrown you into something and, and the lions started to just eat you up and you, just, and you just gave up. I wanted to quit so many times because I hated what I had to do. I'd never done what I did. I didn't appreciate what I was doing. I saw absolute no payoff to calling people, getting hung up on, blah, blah, all this stuff. How many of you are in sales? All right, how many of you have ever cold called or have to cold call now? Okay, you know, what I'm, you know what I'm talking about. It's like there is no light at the end of that tunnel for a really, really long time. But for some reason, I just, I just hung in there because, just, because guess what it was? It was that ego that, that just I'm not going to give up. If it is to be, it's, it's up to me. And hold on to that thought about quitting because I'm going to, I'm going to bring that up in, in just a little bit. So I hang out in Dale Carnegie. I get some success, go to Danville and do some things. And it's kind of working for me. It turns out David who owned the franchise hurt his back. He got injured. So now not only did I not have a manager, but I had to sit in a room 
by myself. I was in the office pretty much by myself and I had to pick up the phone a hundred times a day and make a call with absolutely nobody looking over my shoulder. What do you think I did? I did nothing. Because remember, there was no computer. There was no Facebook. I mean, I did nothing. There was nothing to do. There was, no, there was, there was nothing to do. I'm not going to do that work. And there was nothing to do. It was literally like the power had gone out for six months. And I was just sitting there. You know, I'd feed myself. I'd give myself fluids. And then I'd go home, right? I mean, that's kind of how it worked. But something interesting happened. I, I, I started to realize somebody must be looking out for me. Because these things keep happening to me, and I'm still here. Because David didn't seem like he was coming back, and then when he did come back, he announced he wanted to sell the company. It was a franchise, Del Carnegie's franchise. It's like, cool, man, I'll just work for whoever you decide to buy it to. Victim mentality. I will just do whatever you want me to do. Victim mentality. Something changed. I, I still today don't remember what changed. David had Southwest Virginia in Central West Virginia. Now, if you know anything about geography, there's just not a lot there. So Pittsburgh wanted a little piece of West Virginia. Richmond wanted Lynchburg. Nobody wanted anything in between. And here he was really needing to get out of the, the, the business. A good friend of his had offered him a job. Um, David was on the road all the time. He had three small boys. This guy offered him more money, more benefits, and security. And he said, this is what I'm going for. So it finally came to the point, you know, have you ever been in a situation where you're literally the last man standing? There's like just, there's no other options. The last kid in dodgeball, it's like, all right, you're on our team. That's where I was. I said, I'll buy the business. I have no money. I have no credit. I am so ignorant, I have no idea what I'm getting myself into. And he looked at me and he went, sold, you're hired. <laughs> Literally, I mean, it was like, let's do this. I'm like, yeah, let's do it. So David and I get on an airplane. I, I remember the specific date. It was September 7th, 2001. I'd never been to New York City in my entire life. I'm on a United Air puddle jumper from Roanoke directly into New York City and we're flying by the Twin Towers. Never seen them in person my entire life. Four days later, those things were going down. No idea, right? We were going to New York because I needed to get at least some approval from the franchisor that David had not lost his mind because this is how the conversation went. He's how old? And you want to do what? And how long has he been in the business? You need to come talk to us. So we went up. I apparently said what I needed to say to make the impressions work because when we got back, they called him and said, we're good with this, but you have to stay majority owner until we feel more comfortable with this. And he said, fine, we drew up the contracts and he went to work for the other job and I didn't really see him much after that. So I'm sitting in the same office with the same phone in the same phone book, supposed to be doing the same things, but guess what? I now own it all. Holy crap. <laughs> this like the state, literally, it's like you just went all in on everything. But I was so ignorant to what was happening to me. I really had no, I was so naive. I had no idea. And um, three mortgages later on my home and essentially working out of my house, I, I found a, a woman that wanted to come work for us so bad. I think she would have paid me to come work for us. I mean, she loved Dale Carnegie so much. And so we're getting through this recession. 
there was a, there was a recession in 2002 and we were getting through it and starting to build a business and we got healthy and things were kind of rolling and I got, I got pretty comfortable, but there was still something really, really missing. And I'm going to go down a, a path here that, um, um, I, I, I told, is it Oliver? I told, I, I said, I'm going to use this sometime. Remind me if I don't. So this is the time. So you're off the hook now. When you're in your teens and twenties, you're really worried about what people think about you. When you get into your thirties and forties, you stop worrying what people think about you. And when you get to be 50 and above, you realize no one was ever thinking about you to begin with. All that wasted time and space in your head because almost every decision we end up really making is what will people think about me? What will people think about me? And so here I am in this office doing pretty good and I start to get, I start to get pretty lazy, but, but something was, was missing. And, and the reason I tell the story about what you think about me is I, I wouldn't have told this story 20 years ago in front of a group of mostly people that I don't know. But what I was actually, I was actually hitting rock bottom in just about everywhere in my life. Um, I, I still had not paid off those three mortgages yet. I was going through horrible relationship problems. Um, I was very, very unhappy because I did not know who I was or what I wanted. And then all of a sudden, all these people came into my life and they started talking to me about God and about faith. Now I'm going to call a timeout real quick. There's a portion of the room right now that just because I brought this up, some of you to yourself went, amen, brother, right? Another portion went, oh God, <sighs> here's another one, right? And then there's a lot in the middle here that you're like, cool story, bro. You're just kind of, you know, not, not really, you're, you're not really pulling for either side. <laughs> you're just kind of, kind of in there. Um, but it was the transformational moment in my life because I had nowhere else to really surrender anything to. Um, I thought I had it all and I had nothing. I don't know if you've ever felt like that before, but that's a heck of a predicament. So I literally, there's a long story behind that whole God thing, but I literally just, I, I wanted to quit so bad because I just couldn't make really anything work. So I surrendered it all. I went to church one day. I'd not been attending church very long. And I literally said, I'm done. You can have it. I don't want it anymore. Done. Sick of this. Didn't know what I was going to do. So this was like the second moment the big moment in my life where I really, really wanted to quit. So a lot of this whole evening is going to be about when to quit, when not to quit. And when I got back to work the next week, that next month was the biggest sales month I'd ever had in the business. And then the next month got bigger and the next month got bigger. Could have been a coincidence. Sure. But to me, it wasn't a coincidence. There was a lot to that decision that I made that day to surrender, to let go of some control, to give up something that I thought I had all the control over, which was my life and pretty much anyone's life around me. So sales started to turn around, turn around, turn around. It brought me enough prosperity that in 2008, when the franchise owner for Richmond called and said he wanted to get out, I was able to, to, to buy that business. And if you're kind of keeping score here, 
that was the second recession. So I'm two for two, right? Recession by business, recession by business. Having a conversation, I was asking you what you thought the next recession, because I'm ready to buy another business. Um, you get a good deal, but unfortunately people don't really want to give you money whenever there's a recession. So it's kind of a double-edged sword there. So this recession comes and here I am sitting in this office in Richmond and the whole cycle starts to start over. Because anytime, I'm curious, anyone here ever bought a business? I know we have some people that have built a business from scratch, right? But if you buy a business, you never really know what you're buying until you get there. I, I, don't, I don't care if it's your dad's business <laughs> and you've heard about it every night for dinner. You really don't know what you're getting until you get there. Within six months, every employee in this franchise was gone. So guess what? Sitting in an office all by myself. Crap, here I go again. Maybe this wasn't the right decision for me. But I did what I did before, but I did it with more purpose because before it was about me. Now it's really not about me anymore. And I had that focus, very, very sharp focus on exactly why I was supposed to be doing it. Because it wasn't about making money. It was about the people's lives that were being transformed in the classroom. So the roller coaster goes up and then it starts to come down again and up and down and up and down. That's, that's how business has, has been a lot. Except for the last couple of years, I think most people have seen some prosperity that's been fairly consistent. But for most people, it's been up and down, up and down. And I hit 40, midlife crisis thing starts to kick in, right? All right. Maybe halfway mark, hopefully not quite halfway, but could be halfway, depending on how this whole thing ends for me. What am I supposed to be doing in my life? Why am I here? Is, am I supposed to be doing Dale Carnegie for the rest of my life? So I was going through this cycle of what's my purpose? What is my, what is the one thing I'm supposed to do? And I was struggling and struggling and struggling and struggling. And then uh, two things were happening. Two forces were upon me. One is Asher, who's my guest here tonight. Asher, wave your hand. Asher is general manager of a radio station here in Richmond. Uh, he calls up. Your uncle took the Dale Carnegie course in the, and, and was a trainer in the 60s in North Carolina. And he wanted to take the Dale Carnegie course. And we did a barter for him to take the Dale Carnegie course and me to run some radio ads. And he said, why don't you come down to the station? And I'll show you around the place. So we go down there and there's these pop-up banners with local celebrities and Lee brothers and all these. And I was like, hey, how's, how do people get a show? And Asher, do you even know this? You don't even remember this story. He looks at me as the consummate sales guy. Are you interested? I was like, I don't know. Am I? I never really thought of myself of, of being on, on radio before. So I'm still struggling with this whole what am I supposed to commit the rest of my life to? And out of frustration, I go to social media, I go to Facebook on a Monday night at 6.45. I uh, don't remember the exact date, but it was late April, early May. And I wrote the words, research question, when do you quit? And I did not realize how much power that question was gonna have. And it brought me so much, I think, it probably had about 150 comments. That there were so many people out there struggling. I don't know, when do you quit? Because it's not just about work. When do you quit a relationship? 50% of the, of the marriages today end in divorce. So clearly 50% of, of, of that group at some point had to make the decision when to quit. 
When do you quit a job? When do you quit a relationship? And something else, if you haven't noticed, how suicide rates are just going through the roof. We have people struggling on when to quit life. It's like, wow. So I get back in touch with Asher. I'm really struggling with, well, you know, I don't know. I, I've always said you either have, I either have bad, bad, re, uh, excuse me, bad reasons or great excuses. Which one would you like? I was coming up with every great excuse in the world not to be on the radio, but I had this opportunity in front of me. Well, I need a co-host. I don't know anybody that could do it, so I guess I can't do the radio show. And then all of a sudden I get an intern. I don't do interns. But I had this young woman just harass me for an internship. Harass me from Longwood. It's like, come on, just be an intern. If it sucks, I'm sorry, but this is what's going to happen. So the next day after using the excuse, I don't have a co-host. Her and I are driving to an appointment in my car and out of nowhere, I just look at her and be like, what do you think about being a co-host on a radio show? She looked at me, she goes, I'm just an intern. I said, don't worry, I have no idea what I'm doing either. It'll be perfect. So I call up Asher, I'm like, I got it, I got a co-host. I was like, but we need to do Facebook Live from the studio, because it's gotta have a huge social media play. I was like, well, we don't, have, so we don't have Facebook Live in the studio. I was like, well, I gotta have Facebook Live. Maybe two hours later, or at least the next morning, text, Facebook Live is hooked up. Like, dang, I was, run, I was running out of excuses. So my final stopping point was, what do I talk about? I really don't have a topic. And I open up Facebook, and here's 150 comments on the, on the research question, when do you quit? I was like, I got a topic. Let's just, let's just try it. Didn't go on the radio. Asher kept saying, just come in the studio, just come in the studio, just come in the studio. So I just showed up. I was, I was a nervous wreck. I, I have been... Cumulatively, I've spoken in front of 100,000 people or more altogether, just every group that I've spoken to for 18 years, big, small, real big, real small. But there was nothing like staring a microphone in, in its face and going, I have no idea who's listening to me. Because I know there's about 30 of you right now with your eyeballs on me, but when you're in a room with an intern that's freaking out, by the way, shaking, <laughs> freaking out. I wish I had, I wish we had video of that. With another intern producer on the board, which she did a great job. And we, we went live. It was another transformational moment. Well, we were live, we weren't live radio, but we were live on Facebook. Everything was on the line for me. My reputation, my words, Everything was on the line for me. And I just jumped. I just, with no abandon, I just freaking jumped. We went for about 45 minutes because we were still accounting for commercials because we were still leaving the door open to go on radio. <laughs> if this isn't horrible, we can put it on radio. And when I got done with that, I was practically mad that we had to stop the video. It was one of the most amazing feelings of my life of being engaged in something. But how often do we get to the edge of fear to the point where we're shaking because we're so far out of our comfort zone and we say, no way, I'm not doing it. I'm not going there. 
but you probably have had those experiences where as soon as you take that one next step, it's like, holy crap, this is awesome. Nothing outside you changed. Nothing. There's a great new book out by um, Stephen Furtick. He's the pastor of Elevation Church. It's called Crashing the Chatterbox. It's about that little voice you have in the back of your head. And it, and it occurred to me that little voice had been speaking gospel into my life for 42 years up to that point. And I shut that down. And it was amazing. So I look at Asher, I'm like, buddy, we're on radio. This is it. Every single week for 91 weeks in a row, I've been on radio. And the opportunities that has presented to me to do other things has taught me a, a few other lessons. First of which, my life is not gonna change and I'm not gonna be able to change other people's lives as long as I'm sitting in my chair at my desk. I had to put, and you have to put yourself so far out there that it starts to matter. Because if we just kind of hold ourselves back and we don't put ourselves in situations where we're seen and heard and thought about, you're not gonna, you're not gonna meet your calling. And by the way, that whole, what is your calling? What is your purpose? It just got boiled down to me very easily. We all have the same one and it's the same thing for all of us. It's impacting other people, period. If what you do every single day doesn't directly do something to enhance someone else's life, you're probably out of your, out of your lane for your calling. And, and I'm gonna throw another caveat into this. This came from uh, the Chatterbox book. I love this quote, that if you have not had a head-on collision with the devil recently, there's a good chance you're both moving the same direction. Challenge, hardship, grueling work is a part of what you're supposed to do. In fact, if things are getting a little too easy, you should be really worried about yourself because you may not be doing everything that you need to be doing. I've gotten to the point now when someone tells me no, if someone gets in my way, if anything gets in my way, I just smile and be like, I'm in the right place. Let's go. And sometimes that is getting out of the way, but I'm not going to get discouraged by that. I'm not going to get let down by that. There are really only one thing in your life that someone can't control or take from you. The government can take just about anything it wants from you, legally or illegally. They could take your house, they could take your car, they can take your land, they can take your kids, they could take your spouse. You can have everything taken from you against your will. Maybe not so much in the United States, but certainly in like, you know, Venezuela. <laughs> Am I wrong? I mean, come on. But there's only one thing that absolutely no other human being on this world can take from you. They can even take your life, but there's one thing that nobody can take from you. Nothing. What is it? What? Education. Nope. What is one thing that no one can take from you? Spirit. Your mind. You're in control of your mind. 
24-7. Now, that doesn't mean people don't give up control of their mind. <laughs> I'm not going to turn this into a political conversation by any means. But we often let people into our head. And we let them hang out rent-free, by the way. They've said one thing to you 10 years ago, and you still think about it every once in a while. still get you mad. Guess what? They're living in your head rent-free. But nobody can take your mind away from you. My formula now is what you think controls what you feel, what you feel controls what you do, what you do controls who you are. We really can't control our emotions. I mean, when was the last time you were really upset about something and you said, you know, I'm not going to be upset about this anymore. I'm done. Doesn't happen that way. It's not a switch. Most of us, especially men, we try to control ourselves and situations with actions. We try to do something. We're fixers. Here's another major life lesson I learned. This, his name was Bruce. He took the Dale Carnegie course in Roanoke around 2003, 2004. He worked at ITT Night Vision. He was a unique participant. He was in his early 60s and his manager said, if you don't take the Dale Carnegie course, we're going to fire you. And if you don't come back from there better, we're still going to fire you. Ellis Island, here we go. Great, no pressure <laughs> at all. Good news is Bruce stayed and he retired, but he came into session three and he said, I finally figured it out. When I get off work, me and my wife always go on a walk. And when we go on that walk, she always tells me about her day and I always tell her about my day. And we usually end up leaving that walk and getting home in some, after getting in some sort of an argument. But I finally figured it out. When she's telling me about her day, she just wants me to listen. But I want to fix it. I'm telling her everything she needs to do. When I'm telling her about my day, she's just listening to me. But I want her to give me advice and help me fix it. Right? Women are from Venus, men are from Mars. Guys, we are fixers. We want to control things. We want to manage things. And... That's part of, our, that's part of our, our, our duty, but at the same time, control is, the, is, is, is almost the hot sauce that, that turns so many things on fire inside of our life because we want to we, we control it until we smother it. So I get, I get moving in this, right, back, back, back to, enough about me, let's talk about me. Um, you can laugh at that. Clearly I'm getting close to eight o'clock, okay. So I've got this radio show thing going on and this whole purpose and calling, and it is absolutely the most surreal feeling in the world when you continue to surrender and you continue to let go and you continue to let things happen, not to you, but for you. It's a mind shift. It's part of allowing your mind to be free. There's a book from the 60s. Maxwell Maltz wrote a book called Psycho-Cybernetics. Anyone read it? Know of it? It's not some crazy religion. I know it sounds like it. Psycho-Cybernetics, translated Greek. Psycho means mental. Cybernetics means steering. So it's mental steering. It is the best book you could ever read on how to take control over your thoughts and your mind. It's an amazing book because we don't realize we have so much control over our mind. So... Stop trying to control everything around you and just control what you believe. And that will start to change not just your life, but all the lives of the people around you, your kids, your spouses, 
your coworkers, your employees.